Uh, hi, everyone. Welcome to the Idiots Podcast. That's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm James, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? Comparatively brilliant. Callum, we forgot to do Entrecopy. We even mentioned them in the Strep episode. Are we bad microbiologists? We completed Kokai and now we're completing Kokai again. Again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid we have to. The completionist in us, in both of us, uh, won't let us move on. Are these your favorite uh, grand positive Kokai? No, far from. In fact, I would say they're possibly my least favorite. Yeah, they're sort of a little bit annoying. We'll come on to the clinical picture, but in general, they're difficult to treat and they, they're not really the the star of the show they're usually uh, a side act yeah i got a case right now actually that we can talk about that's um oh. that's very interesting that's based around intracocci but uh, as always we're going to go through when, when we're doing a bug episode we're going to do what they are what they do how they're classified and how to kill them cal why don't you take us away with what they are. Okay. Uh, so enterococci are gram-positive cocci, as you might bet from the name. They are in chains, usually quite short chains or pairs. Uh, so a little bit like streptococci. They are catalase negative, which is the same as streptococci. They're facultative anaerobes. They can uh, respire aerobically, but they can do anaerobically if they really need to. They're non-hemolytic on the agar. Usually, sometimes they, they can exhibit a little bit of beta hemolysis, but generally speaking, non-hemolytic. And they uh, group to group D in Lansfield grouping, which we talked about in um, streptococci. And historically, they were essentially group D streptococci, and they were in the family in, um, of streptococci. Um, but with more up-to-date uh, genetic testing, uh, they're actually fairly distinct. Uh, so they've been placed in their own family, which is the uh, they're the only genus in that family that infect humans. Yeah, so they, they like you say, I, I was introduced to them actually still as group D streptococci. Mm. And for a while, I thought that they were just a, a kind of a group of strep that had decided to live lower down in the gut, um, which is where they normally live. They sort of live in the in the GI tract, but kind of more around about the kind of mid-gut, like the, the duodenum and the... Uh, and the biliary tract they're quite alkaline resistant so that's why you can sometimes find them there yeah. and i so my impression was that they were they were just a, a subset of of streptococci but what actually happened was they did a load of genetic testing and found that they were although they they grouped to uh, they grouped to d and if you grow them on an agar plate they can look very similar to strep they are in a separate family with a bunch of other things which are predominantly parasites of, of insects um, and don't infect humans. So they're sort of into this family called Entrococci. And there's a bunch of genesis in there, but Entrococci are the, the ones that infect us. Um, they're about 500 million years old, which I didn't realize. So they're about as old as the Cambrian explosions. They've been infecting a bunch of different animals for a very long period of time, which is why they're kind of found so widespread. So they're found in, in all vertebrates and a bunch of uh, arthropods and other invertebrates as well. 
I didn't know that. Well, neither did I until I revised it for this episode, but there you go. <laughs> the alkaline resistant thing makes a lot of sense. I really like it when you yeah. learn something that makes sense and explains something that you are aware of, but don't quite understand the the rationale behind, because I'm, def- I'm definitely going to remember that. And, and just in case the loyal listener is, is wondering why that would make them liable to live in the ability to transfer bile neutralizes stomach acid as it's uh, that's his day job. Uh, and so your biliary tract is naturally quite alkaline uh, relative to the rest of your GI tract. Okay, so that's what they are. Uh, what do they do? So we'll, we'll start by saying that these are not the most aggressive pathogens uh, in the world. They've got a bunch of antimicrobial resistance genes that you need to worry about. We'll come on to that shortly. But uh, they're fairly indolent as pathogens in general. Uh, but they are... Uh, implicated in a, in a sort of series of conditions. So if they get into the urinary tract, they can cause UTIs. They can translocate uh, and cause spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, particularly in people with alcohol liver disease. And they can get into the bloodstream. If they get into the bloodstream, they can travel to the heart valves and cause endocarditis. And they can travel to the meninges and cause meningitis. Although usually that's associated with some kind of plastic you know, or prosthetic device uh, like a VP shunt, uh, for example, that's been left in there. And then if that happens, the, the cure really, you can give intrathecal antimicrobials, but the cure is to remove the uh, infected source. So VP shunt being ventricular peritoneal shunt. I guess the other couple of things that you might get it on is, you know, in, in the same context, material, so deep, uh, long lines, so like uh, central lines, pick lines, etc. These can become affected of intracocci too and i think that i think we're saying about bloodstream infections so you know as you would suspect from their location in the body often that is in relation to some intra-abdominal problem and it can be uh in the sort of context of someone being unwell infection but what you sometimes find is that you've got particularly in terms of the dem- demographics older frail patients they're maybe not that unwell and you identify uh, intracocal bacteremia. Sometimes you wonder how, how significant this is this because they're so well with it. You know, if you're doing blood cultures, is that you're just picking up transient bacteremia or is it going to be clinically significant? But, you know, it can go on to cause severe complications such as endocarditis. So, mm. you know, generally speaking, we would treat intracocal bacteremia. But, you know, there is, is there a degree of bacterial translocation of the gut that it wouldn't cause any clinical harm if we didn't find it. I don't know the answer to that question. Transient bacteremia deserves a wee bit of explanation, Cal, if you want to. Yeah, I think we've we've sort of talked about bacteremia in general. And I think transient bacteremia is when you identify bacteria in the bloodstream, which is short-lived and resolves. And so there's recognition that this occurs. The classic example being brushing your teeth. So when you brush your teeth, you cause microtrauma of the gums and you get some oral flora into the into the bloodstream. Uh, and generally that is uh, dealt with very quickly by your immune system. And in those who are immune competent, you know, that's, that's dealt with. Uh, if you're immuno-incompetent or immunocompromised, in these patients, that can that can be more troublesome. I guess I'm not saying don't brush your teeth if you've got an immune problem, but... Uh, no, God, no, you need your teeth. But yes. you're right. Like, so the, you, you can be transiently bacteremic and, you know, people might be thinking, well, what, where, where do they go? They get killed by your white blood cells. That's what they're for. You've got a circulating population of monocytes and your blood's full of neutrophils 
and that's what therefore they're their first responder detection and merger system for bacteria and viruses and so they just you know gobble those uh, bacteria up the only time that they'll start to cause a problem is if the bacteremia is significant or if you're immunocompromised or you've immunocompromised the patient and then it can become more serious other things that can co- lead to transient bacteremia you know outside of routine things that happen like but um procedures so endoscopy or um sigmoidoscopy you know uh, some sort of instrumentation you know i guess it comes down to why you're taking blood cultures you should only be taking them really when you suspect the patient's got an infection yeah in terms of classification this is why it's going to be quick there's no fancy classification system to talk about uh, on the agar plate they will be you know, initially classified as uh, a streptococci because they grow in a way similar to strep, and they'll they'll Lansfield group, and their um, uh, hemolysis will be you know either non-hemolytic or uh, beta. Did you say? Yes, I think typically gamma hemolysis, which is is non-hemolysis. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so. exactly. Um, but in terms of how they're classified, usually what happens is they come back and they're just identified to species level, and there's five species that infect humans. Almost all infections, 90% of them, are caused by Enterococcus faecalis. Five to 10 are caused by Enterococcus faecium. And less than 1% are caused by uh, Enterococcus caseloflavus, gallinarum, and raphinosis, which I had never heard about before the podcast, raphinosis. The only reason to you know, identified species level is because some of them are intrinsically resistant to certain antimicrobials that we would want to use. And the big problem with enterococcal infections is, although they're quite indolent, like we said before, they're intrinsically resistant to a bunch of a bunch of stuff. But if you just hold in your head that enterococcus causes almost all enterococcal infections and fecium and some weird ones cause the remainder then that's that's really all you need to know about them when we're looking at what the common causes are it's important to think of the the demographics of the population you're looking at because that, that's in general everyone um but when you start to look at the hospital healthcare environment you see a lot more of the more unusual enterococci like fecium um that it's still not going to be the most common but you'll see a lot more enterococcus fecium um, and we'll come on to why that is, but part of it is to do with the hospital environment being full of antimicrobial particles and environment. And so the more resistant organisms are, are encouraged um, in a way to, to grow and they're select this, you know, they've got the selective pressure. Uh, so endrococci really are a problem of secondary and tertiary healthcare. Um, they're not something that you're going to just, you know, go to your GP and say, I've got an endrococcal infection. Yeah, it's a, not- a problem of our own making really, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're sort they've come we'll come on to the difficulties of treating them and that's really where it comes in. It's patients that are exposed to antibiotics or antimicrobials. They're they're in hospital. They've got complex health care or they're immune compromised. You know, it, it's, it's difficult. So should we talk? We're kind of straying into how to kill them. Yeah, that that's the main bit I think because the like you say, there's not a lot to say in the in the other sections. All right, so how so how do we kill them? Um, what do we use? Well, the first thing is to say that is that what what your first line choice varies kind of markedly depending on what the the organism is. So we're just going to talk for the first little while about Enterococcus faecalis and Enterococcus faecium because they cause the lion's share of infections in humans. 
these organisms are intrinsically resistant to cephalosporins, carbapenems, aminoglycosides, and quinolones. They're not particularly sensitive to cotrimoxazole, although you can use it, but you would generally tend not to. And kind of the bedrock of treatment is amoxicillin and vancomycin. So Intracoccus faecalis, with an S, is sensitive to amoxicillin. And Entrococcus faecium means that you must use another antibiotic because they are resistant to amoxicillin intrinsically. I don't really understand the difference for that sensitivity, Cal. Do you know? I think it's just penicillin binding. Yeah, proteins. PPP sensitivity, yeah. So I think it's because the, the reason that they are not sensitive to the other beta-lactams is PPP affinity. So cephalosporins, carbapenems, they normally treat gram-positive organisms, as uh, the loyal listener probably already knows, but they don't treat these uh, bugs. Uh, and that's because of PPP. Um, the, the PPPs of entrococci are dissimilar to the PPPs of the other gram-positive cocci. Uh, but for some reason, amoxicillin usually treats entrococcus faecalis. It is possible for it to acquire resistance to amox, uh, but with entrococcus uh, it's never sensitive to moxicillin, so you have to use something else. When it comes to UTIs, uh, an interesting fact to know is that most entrococci are sensitive to nitrofurantoin, uh, but nitrofurantoin is really just used for UTIs. And it's not really kind of used for treating systemic illness. And you know, when we're thinking about entrococcal infections like bacteremias and endocarditis and things like that, these are systemic illnesses that you need to. Uh, take seriously. I've just I've just uh, looked up the reason for the PKM resistance. If you want to, yeah, go ahead. Well, okay, so it looks like it's quite complicated, but beta lactam resistance in 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 intracocci, um, So they have PBB four or five, and that isn't present in both Fecalis and Fecium, and it's intrinsic, and that gives low level penicillin resistance and moderate or high-level cephalosporin resistance. So we're actually knocking out the cephalosporins and not really using penicillins, and that's intrinsically in both of them. Then, Entrococcus fecium intrinsically has an altered cell wall where it has LD transpeptidase. Uh, so that's intrinsic to, to Entrococcus fecium. And then there's other sporadic resistance mutations, which there's a point mutation you can get in the PBB4 or 5. Um, and that can occur sporadically in both organisms. So that would give you a, an amoxicillin-resistant fecalis, which you, which you Yeah, say. yeah. Um, um, probably doesn't really matter in PKM because it's intrinsically resistant. Anyway, or at least, I guess we say intracoccus PKM, amoxicillin doesn't work, but I think you, you sometimes can have breakpoints where it's quite... Breakpoints is where, you know, how sensitive it is. And you can sometimes treat uh, PKM with amoxicillin. Really? Because I, I thought that um, it was really always amoxicillin resistant. Almost always. So yes, basically, so you cast the people that define the breakpoints say that you, you, it's common to have resistance in VKM, but it's not universal. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. My understanding. Uh, someone email in if we're wrong. Yeah. Oh God, I would hate to. I would hate to get an email from Stephen Ucast, you know, the famous inventor of the Ucast system. 
so when it comes to IV treatment, you've really got two empirical choices. If it's HVK less, you would empirically choose amoxicillin until and unless you discovered there was resistance uh, afoot. And then if it was anything else, uh, you would choose vancomycin. And then in terms of other things that can be used, there's daptomycin, linezolid, tigacycline, and synersid, which is a combination of two drugs, quinupristin and dalfopristin. Callum, have you ever used synersid? Uh, I've had discussions about using it. It's quite hard to access. It's fairly niche. Yeah, I think it's more commonly used in the US. Um, yeah, I think France uses quite a lot yeah. as well. Okay. It is rarely used and uh, neither me nor Calm have ever used it. Uh, so uh, we'll move on from that. Uh, when it comes to like oral treatments, because you know sometimes you want to put these people on tablets, there's really only two games in town. Um, one is amoxicillin, if it's uh, sensitive, you know, like an androcloxifacalis, and the other one is linezolid. And those are really the only oral options that we've got, really. Yeah, you're you're in a bit of trouble if you're wanting to give someone oral agents. UCAS do give breakpoints for levofloxacin, ciprofloxacin, but I've never really seen that used, and they say it's only for uncomplicated UTI. Yeah, I, th- I think probably it'll be a, if you can concentrate it in the urine, because because quinolones, you know, it's a bit like amylglycosides. You, you get, um, you know, concentrations 8, 10, 12 times what you get in plasma, and so... Uh, I could well imagine that maybe they're overcoming the kind of intrinsic um, resistance that they've got. And the only other things to mention orally, so nitrofurantoin um, can be used for like enterococcus in urine because uh, it concentrates there well. Um, and cotrimox as well, as you mentioned earlier on, Jane, it's uncertain if it, if it works, basically. So the laboratory, you can't, you can't get um, breakpoints because... Basically, antipathy is uncertain, is what you can say. So, yeah, that's the oral agents. There's not many. Well, this is kind of factored into my case, actually. Do you want, do you want to hear about it? So, so my, my case is ongoing, actually. So I, I have a, a, a gentleman who uh, presented kind of very non-specifically unwell, but one of his presenting features was back pain. He was uh, an otherwise quite healthy man, uh, sort of in his 60s or thereabouts, and he... Uh, had back pain, he had fevers, he was kind of had muscle aches and chills and all that, all that kind of thing. And so we uh, ended up culturing Enterococcus faecalis from his uh, from his blood. And because he had some back pain, we did some imaging, we did an MRI of his spine, and he ended up that he had a discitis, which isn't in our list that we've mentioned just a few moments ago about the things that enterococci cause, but they can also cause discitis. Um, we echoed his heart. We didn't find it. Uh, we didn't find any vegetations. We imaged his head and his, his uh, chest and abdomen. So the only thing we could find was the bacteremia and the, and the discitis. But um, when we imaged his abdomen, um, we found an evidence of, of maybe a recent passing of a gallstone. We had a slightly thick-walled gallbladder. We didn't have a stone there at the moment. The kind of biliary tract was slightly dilated. So we did an ERCP. We kind of uh, ended up removing a couple of stones. And, and what we think is that the gallbladder had gotten inflamed and the enterococci had translocated from there into the bloodstream and, and there on to the, to the spine. 
So, you know, we had a more appropriate initial antimicrobial therapy. The issue with him is that he was fairly well because, as we've said before, enterococcus is a fairly indolent pathogen, and he was desperate to leave. And normally what we do is we would, you know, take a guy like this and put him on our, our OPAT, our outpatient antibiotic um, service, and we'd put a long line in like a pick line or a, or a midline and give him antimicrobials for six weeks. But the trouble was that this guy lived um, pretty far away from the hospital so that the commute for daily uh, antimicrobials would be about, 70 to 80 minutes each way. Um, so this this wasn't really viable for him. So we had a big chat about it. And although normally we would want to keep people on IVs for a, a prolonged period of time, we put them on amoxicillin and linezolid. So our, our two oral options, but we doubled up on them um, to try and optimize the, the chances that we were going to get clinical cure. Um, and he's... Um, uh, just about to finish antimicrobials, and then we'll we'll repeat some imaging at that point um, uh, to make sure that we can consider the the job done at six weeks. We'd hope that we would be able to because you know it's not an aggressive staph aureus or anything like that. But we'll see. And did he have any symptoms of this gob? You know, had he, was he like, oh yeah, I have been having. Right, you know, right upper quadrant pain for for months. Or was there anything to suspect that, or do you just went hunting for it in the assumption that there there would be something in his abdomen? No, it was it was a source hunt. Um, so we we didn't really know where the enterococcus had come from. Now, of course, we know that enterococci live in the upper GI tract. So we were thinking about upper GI malignancy, and we were thinking about doing an a, an OGD and endoscopy of the upper GI tract. Um, but then then we found this imaging on. Uh, CT scanning and kind of went down that route. Um, and it, it kind of looked like he probably had like a silent cholecystitis episode outside of hospital and then had presented with um, the bacteremia and the dyskytis symptoms. Yeah, it's a funny one uh, in terms of symptoms, not in terms of resistance. So do you have a resistance case that you want to uh, talk about, Cal? Well, I think another another small case before we talk about the antimicrobial resistance thing and maybe just to highlight the difficulties that we face with patients where there are limitations on what is already a limited repertoire of treatment. Um, so this case was uh, some time ago now, but it was a, a transplant patient. So a patient that had a, a liver transplant um, and it unfortunately was a bit complicated uh, postoperatively. Um, they'd had some problems with their wounds. They'd had a bit of um, uh, problems uh, needing drains placed. They'd had an acute kidney injury. Um, they um, had diabetes and had various other problems. And they'd been unwell in and out of ICU post-op and then into the high dependency unit um, and had been unwell with infections. So had lots of antibiotics, long lines, very medically complicated. And then as part of the screen for infections, we grew in their blood uh, VRE, uh, which will come out of vancomycin resistant enterococci. Um, and this is a very common occurrence in hospitals. Uh, we use a lot of vancomycin. Um, now, in this patient, uh, they'd had quite a lot of healthcare exposure in the past, and they had some allergies. Uh, they had a documented uh, reaction to penicillin, which is vomiting, 
uh, and I believe that it had been tried on that time and again it had a reaction so penicillin was sort of put out uh, whether that was completely the right thing and there was more we could have done is debatable uh, another thing that they'd had before was linezolid um, so this patient had had the transplant for um, cirrhosis of the liver so they'd had a lot of healthcare problems. They had a lot of antibiotics, and I think they'd had VRE before their transplant. So they'd had linezolid before, but they had visual disturbance. So one of the complications is object neuritis. So um, linezolid was out. Um, so we had VRE, uh, vancomycin-resistant uh, enterococci in their blood, uh, and then it was then identified as a fecium. Um, so it was, as you'd expect, resistant to amoxicillin. Um, so we're into somewhat problem territory. So just to summarize so far, amoxicillin's out, yep. not only because of the allergy, but also because of the organism. Yep. Vancomycin's out and linezolid is out. Yep. Um, the other thing that was going on with this patient is that they had lots of other organisms growing. So they had some urine samples with gram negatives um, and they had some, I think some staphylococci from a, from a drain site as well. Um, so essentially what they ended up was in tigacycline, um, but the problem was that uh, tigacycline is a tetracycline-based antibiotic, and it's, it's quite good at getting to tissue, but it's not great at clearing bacteremia, so it's far from your, from your first-line choice. Um, the other thing that was thought about was daptomycin, but um, in the context of quite bad renal impairment and, um, you know, uh, you know the, the, it wasn't felt ideal, but that was another option. And enterococci can quite quickly res develop resistance to daptomycin. So, you know, it was, it was one of these cases where, and I think, my, I don't know about you, Jane, but when you get an organism sample back and it's someone who's complicated and then they've got enterococci and then it, it just feels like every time it's going to get, it's quite a common occurrence to get these complications. So, you know, you're immediately thinking, oh, they've got, ba they've got bacteremia, that's bad. Then you get an enterococci and you think, oh, it's getting quite complicated. Okay, we'll do the vancomycin. Then the next day you get the vancomycin resistance data back and you're like, oh, right, okay. The then typical step is, oh, I want to get them on Ezolid, perhaps potentially. Um, oh, actually, they're on a, some sort of antidepressant, uh, like an SSRI or TCA. Um, you know, something that, and basically won't go into that in too much depth, but they both affect them. Yeah, but for the loyal listener, that means you would rather not use it. Yeah. And then you're thinking, okay, well, I'll use daptomycin. Oh, actually, they can't have that, or they're on a statin and you stop that. Well, they need an oral option. So, you know, it's, it is tricky. Uh, so, should we talk about um, antimicrobial resistance genes? So, we talked about some intrinsic resistance. Um, want to talk about acquired resistance in genes. Yeah, so, so the only thing that I've got here in, in the AMR, because there's so much intrinsic resistance, is 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 the vancomycin resistance that um, that that was part of your case. So before we before they do that, I'll talk a little bit about how vancomycin works because I think it's worth explaining that and then understanding how the van genes work, the, the van resistance genes work is, mu is much easier. So uh, the loyal listener may already know that vancomycin is uh, an inhibitor of cell wall synthesis. And we've previously mentioned that, you know, penicillins prevent peptidoglycan cross-linkage by entering with PBPs, which are penicillin binding proteins, they're enzymes, which stimulate the cross-linking of, of peptidoglycan uh, residues. 
Vancomycin works a step earlier in the process. So there are peptidoglycan precursor molecules which are produced in cytoplasm and then excreted um, out of the cell membrane and then are cross-linked. And what vancomycin does is it binds um, D-ALA residues in those molecules. So what's D-ALA? D stands for dextro, as in right-handed, and ALA is alanine. Uh, so there are enzymes in bacteria which convert levo or L-form alanine to D-form alanine. And then those molecules are kind of incorporated into a peptidoglycan precursor and then pushed outside of the cell and then are cross-linked. Well, vancomycin binds D-ALA, D-ALA, and prevents that cross-linkage from occurring. And so then if you want to become resistant to vancomycin, you might want to think about changing that D-ALA, D-ALA to something else. And that's what van genes do. So there's three that are of real significance in humans, Van A, Van B, and Van C. There's actually D, E, uh, G, H, and M, I think. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of them, right? Uh, but there's, there's the three that are of relevance in humans. The other ones are really of relevance in kind of animals and uh, insects. But they all kind of do the same thing which is they change that D-ALA to something else. Um, incidentally, when I'm talking about these van genes, it's not really a gene, it's an operon, which is a collection of genes, which are all kind of uh, expressed and sequenced to each other. But they all contain a gene which is kind of labeled as van A, van B, or van C. And uh, so you can kind of clinically you can consider them as as one unit and also i i guess before i go on any further i should say um as far as the norm you know the non-infection specialist goes you can just stop at vancomycin resistant all and all of this is just kind of what we're about to say is really for infection specialists so if you're an f1 on the ward you can stop listening at this point or you can uh, don't, keep don't on listening, listening for your own uh, edification. Don't stop listening. No, uh, keep on listening and then give us a five-star review. Uh, but, you know, functionally, you don't really need to know any of this, but it's just of interest, really. So that's what the VRE genes that are the VAN genes do. They, they kind of change DLA, DLA to something else. And uh, what do they change it to? Well, um, VAN A and VAN B, uh, which are the kind of commonest genes that you encounter, change it to D-ALA, D-LAC, or D-ALA-LAC, lactose. Um, and uh, VAN-C uh, changes uh, the uh, sequence to D-ALA, D-serine. And these have differences in terms of the kind of binding affinity that they do. So VAN-C only reduces the binding affinity to, to vancomycin by sevenfold whereas Van A and Van B do it 1,000-fold. Mm. Uh, so the, the difference is quite pronounced. I, I never, I didn't know the exact folds, but um, yes, low-level resistance to vancomycin and C. Uh, so A has got high-level resistance to vancomycin and tycoplanin, which is the other glycopeptide that we use a lot here, certainly. Um, there are other glycopeptides that we're not really talking about. Van B, so high-level resistance to vancomycin and generally susceptible to tycoplanin. Uh, and then C, low-level resistance to vancomycin and 
adrenaline susceptible to dicoplanin. I guess the other main thing to talk about the differences between A, B, and C is the organisms that you see them in. Uh, so C, you generally see with um, this is, is a, a gene that uh, some of the entrococci have uh, intrinsically. So that's Entrococcus gallinarum, Castleflavus, and uh, Flavicens, which we haven't talked about before. Yeah. So Castleflavus and Flavicens, they're, they're sort of the same organism or they're part of an organism hybrid uh, yeah. group. I think we talked about this before in an episode where we were talking about intrinsic resistance. Yeah. So these are the one. These are the weird ones that cause very little disease. But in immunocompromised patients, you might you might see stuff like this, you know. And it's you know they don't cause a disease a lot, but they're inside every human, so they've always got the potential to cause uh, you know illness. There, you do see it. I've seen quite a few cases. Of, you know, I can think of a mm. couple, but it's certainly you know compared to the 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 huge numbers of the other entrococci. Uh, ban A and Ban B are both can both be present in Entrococcus fecalis and fecium, and uh, they're quite easily transferred um, between um, the organisms on either plasmids or on, on chromosomes. Um, and I think Van A is generally the one that you're going to see in hospital. You can get Van A in Staph aureus, probably picks it up from other organisms like Entrococci. Um, so that's certainly like vancomycin-resistant Staph aureus is, has been a concern. Uh, we're luckily not to have very much of it. No, no, I've I've not seen a lot of that at all. Have you? Not really. No. Um, most of the time, when you get a laboratory sample and it says it's staph aureus resistant to bank, you know, you go back and check it. Actually, it's not. Or there's been some laboratory problems, so um, not really had any experience with it. Luckily, um, but yes, the there's a hospital problem. So this is an environment. So typical units will be like areas where a lot of vancomycin is used. So places that use a lot of lime. Uh, renal is a really good example um, because um, because people's kidneys don't work, you're less resistant to use things like um, vancomycin and gentamicin because if you cause a bit of nephrotoxicity, it doesn't really matter if people are on dialysis. And people on dialysis have a lot of lines, uh, long lines for dialysis. Um, yeah. And because they've got lines, lines get infected. What do they get infected with? Gram-positive cocci. What do you treat gram-positive cocci with? Vancomycin. So you have these patients where... They're in and out of hospital and they're getting a lot of vancomycin. There's also a lot of vancomycin in the environment. So you select out these entrococci which have these genes and they're resistant. So then they get vancomycin resistant entrococci. But then that patient comes into dialysis, they're in the room, they maybe don't know about it. It's in the environment, the environment's got vancomycin. Some vancomycin resistant entrococci are even dependent on vancomycin. So we've we've bred you almost like selected them out so much that they now need vancomycin to survive. Um, you can see that sometimes where patients are on long courses of vancomycin for, say, a line infection, and then they get a VRE. Once you stop giving them vancomycin, they actually will go away. I think that's really interesting because you think about antibiotic kills bacteria, but it's at the end of the day a very large molecule, and these organisms seem to gain some benefit from them. Yeah, well, that's uh, yeah, that's the the thing to to know about glycopeptides is that they're they're huge molecules, certainly relative to to beta lactam, say, um, and and like you say, they're they're used disproportionately in hospital. You know, like all IV only antibiotics, I suppose. But you know, when I'm particularly up in Scotland where we are practicing, the the bedrock of our empirical antibiotic guidelines are. 
you know, in terms of gram positive cover, it's flu clocks, Ben Pen, and vancomycin. You know, we're not empirically advising anyone to prescribe daptomycin or linezolid. Those are the the grown up antibiotics that we kind of reserve for uh, use on the advice of infection specialists. Um, so yeah, um, so when it comes to kind of remembering all this stuff uh, for the uh, again for the infection specialist here. I think Van A is the one where all glycopeptides would be useless mm. because it's resistant to causes resistant to Vancan Tycho. But also A is for Aureus because this is the vancomycin resistance gene that has been transferred from Entrococci to, to Staph Aureus. Uh, so VRSA is driven uh, sometimes by. Uh, other uh, resistance mechanisms, but quite a lot of the time by Van A. Hmm. Van B, you can use your backup glycopeptide. Now, this is very specific to UK and, and, and Australasian practice because I know there are other parts of the world where tycoplanin is the uh, predominant glycopeptide that's used. And in fact, in pediatrics, um, here, cycloplanin is is kind of used as the first line, isn't it, Cal? So you could say that in those situations, you use your B for best glycopeptide. B for best. Okay, I like that. Okay, um, but you can for Van B, you can use your tycoplanin, uh but not vancomycin. And the reason for this is that vancomycin will induce Van B expression in the organism, whereas tycoplanin doesn't. So it's important to recognize that Van A and Van B, they are resistance genes. They can be in a plasmid, they can be in a chromosome, but they are predominantly inducible. They're not constitutively impressed. These, these enzymes cost in terms of, you know, the uh, residues that they produce, this, this d ala d lack is not as good as d ala d ala in terms of the fitness of the organism. So they don't naturally produce it. And so this means that they're kind of antimicrobial dependent. So if you, you know, if you took the time to uh, culture your organism in your, in your human, uh, and you found that it was expressing Van B and you had already given them vancomycin and induced that resistance, you couldn't then go on and use tycoplanin because it would, you know, uh, be resistant uh, to that. But in reality, we don't do this. We don't check for the van enzymes. We just phenotypically assess their uh, their resistance to certain antimicrobials, and what you'll you'll get is a sensitivity or resistance to either Vancor or Tyco. And if you see it that it's resistant to both, then you might th assume that it was a van A. If it was resistance to one but not the other, and it was a Entfikium or Fikilis, you would assume that they had a van B. And you could still use tycoplanin, but to be honest, a lot of people would then move on to use the other antimicrobials that we've mentioned before. And then if it was um, a Gallinarma castelliflavus, you would sort of assume that they possessed fancy because they're, they're constitutively expressed and chromosomally bound. Um, and you you might consider using tycoplanin if you had to in those um, circumstances. You could also use vancomycin because it only causes low-level resistance, but that, that varies very markedly with, with the clinical circumstances uh, that you find yourself in. You certainly wouldn't trust vancomycin as much as other antimicrobials, and you would probably prefer to use others. 
the last thing to say about the vancomycin resistance genes is that Van A and Van B, these ones which can be on plasmids or on chromosomes, are movable. So we've kind of implied this before when we talked about Van A being expressed in Staph aureus. They are bound in transposons, which are jumping genes. Uh, and so they can move from organism to organisms. So they can be transferred quite easily. Van C, by contrast, is, is limited to Enterococcus gallinarum and Castelloflavus uh, that we mentioned before. Um, you won't see Van C in another organism. They, they have not yet managed to, to move themselves into a transposon. Mm. And that, that's related to the gene complex, which is within the Van C uh, operon which sort of makes it difficult for them to move into other organisms. Very well explained. Thanks. Well, that's us covered all the agenda items, I guess. Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you uh, email us at idiotspodcasting at gmail.com? Like our first ever email, Callum. Yes. Uh, a big thank you to Lisa for your uh, positive feedback. It's always nice to hear from our one... Uh, uh, loyal listener um so thanks very much for getting in touch really appreciate it <laughs> and um any corrections to anything we're saying would be very welcome because we would like to learn as well but yes thanks very much for listening to this episode see you next week cheerio or fortnight or month whenever callum finishes editing it okay bye <laughs>